this morning. Uh, it's page 844 in your Blue Pew Bible. would encourage you all to follow along. So every year, um, over 11,000 high school students apply to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Very famous institution. It's less than an hour from here. 11,000 students apply each year from across the country. And the process to be accepted to West Point is really twofold. Uh, on one end, uh, you need to be accepted by the admissions office like any other college. Uh, they review your transcript, your scores, your involvement in the community and extracurricular activities, um, your character they evaluate. You need to be accepted by the school. But there's a second aspect that is unique amongst the military academies in that you also need to apply for and receive a nomination by a member of Congress. So most often it's a state senator who meets with applicants and then they have a limited number of nominations they are allowed to give out based upon character, whether or not they think they would be a good fit. All in all, about 10% of applicants will be accepted to West Point. 10% will receive the note that, that you are in, you, you have been chosen, and it is a prestigious honor, a tremendous honor as they look forward to what that means for education, for a career, for maybe a post-military career, and they are affirmed, amongst other things, that they are kind of uh, the elite of their high school class. But then something happens. Graduating high school seniors who are on their way to West Point, they don't get a summer break like their friends do. Instead, they go to basic training the summer in between high school and college, and it's affectionately known as BEAST. They say goodbye to their families. They bring a small duffel bag of essentials that they probably won't even have to use any of that because they are issued all their clothing. The first thing they do is they go get their military-style haircuts, and for the next seven weeks, they're only referred to as a number that they have been given. It is a shock to the system for many. You see, the first summer at West Point is a time when the high are brought low. This past Monday, July 2nd, the class of 2022 began beast. And if it follows the, the statistical average, about 100 to 150 newly minted cadets, cadets will quit this summer. They'll walk away, and they'll go home before even classes start in the fall. And they would say something along the lines of, you know what, it's just not what I expected. It's not what I signed up for. It's not how I envisioned being a cadet at West Point. It was supposed to be prestigious and, and grand, but, but not like this. This is, this is hard, and I'm out. We're at the crossroads of the Gospel of Mark. For the past six months, we've been walking through this Gospel uh, verse by verse. And in the first eight chapters, uh, the burning question everyone wanted to know was, when they came across this man, Jesus, was, was who is he? Who is this man? And, and because he was doing three things on repeat, man, we just, I've been saying it week after week because we've been seeing it week after week. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been driving out evil. Just miraculous stories, flexible his power, showing his compassion over and over and over again. 
And it all built up to the passage we saw last week, where Peter was the first disciple, the first person in the Gospel of Mark to say, Jesus, you were the Christ. It was a huge moment, right? Jesus, you're the anointed one. Like, you are the one, the Messiah we've been waiting for. It was finally the right answer to the most important question in life. Who is Jesus? And they got it. And Jesus affirmed them in this. But here's the thing. The Gospel of Mark, it's only halfway done. You, you would think maybe that would be the end but we'll find out quickly. This, that, that's not the only thing they need to know. It's the most important thing they need to know, but it's not the only thing, not by a long shot. And starting at the verse that we'll start at this morning, chapter 8, verse 31, there is a distinct shift in the Gospel of Mark, and it's tough. And we're going to notice it right away. So join with me. Read along as we finish chapter 8, starting in verse 31 to the end. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. This passage serves as a kind of introduction to the whole back half of the gospel. And as I just said, to just put it bluntly, if you were to read ahead, the back half of Mark is tough. Okay, the first half was mostly events and scenes and miraculous things that, that contained just a little bit of teaching from Jesus. But the back half, it now flips. It will be heavy on the teachings of Jesus that will contain scenes here and there of divine power. But it's primarily Jesus teaching on a couple of things. And it's weighty. And, and I'll be honest, this morning's sermon, it's a little heavy. It's got some tough things in here, and I think Mark deliberately put it this way. It's the whole design of how he crafted his gospel. First, answer the question, who is this man? And then, in the back half, answer the question, and why has he come? And then, what does it mean to follow him? So this is kind of the flyover of what we're just going to see for the next eight chapters. So, so here's our outline for this morning, if you're taking notes. Uh, again, um, uh, an introduction to what everything's going to be from here on out. And Jesus is really going to teach about two things on repeat. Messiahship and discipleship. Messiahship and discipleship. First, what does it mean to be the Messiah? And then second, what's it mean to be a disciple? 
If you know our vision here, what we talk about all the time, we talk about making disciples, right? Like we say that on repeat. And so this is really important because we find out what's it mean to be a disciple? What's the first thing Jesus says about being a follower of Christ? But first, messiahship. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Christ? Uh, Jesus goes on. He, Peter uh, says it. He says, you are right. Don't tell anybody for right now. And then he goes right into this teaching saying, the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer, must be rejected and killed, and then after three days rise again. It's the first time First of three times, Jesus will say this just plainly to anybody who will listen. And in the eyes of his disciples, just put yourself in their shoes for a moment, right? They are riding high as they enter Caesarea Philippi because they just finally answered who Jesus is. And Jesus said, you're right. So this is not what they would expect. Jesus just said, the Son of Man must die. That word must is the most vital word to zero in on in this passage. Because you know what Jesus is not saying? He's not saying, all right, you guys got it. I'm the Messiah. But listen, um, the opposition's pretty stiff out there. It's going to be pretty tough. And so I'm going to try and be the Messiah, but I'm predicting that uh, I'm going to fail and and I might die. Not what he said. He says, listen, the Son of Man must die. He's saying, fellas, this is why I came. I intend to do this. I must do this. It's not the first time Jesus has referred to himself as the Son of Man in Mark, but it's a phrase that will recur more often now in the back half. And and it connects him to this Old Testament prophecy, most notably Daniel chapter 7. Everybody knew in the first century, Daniel chapter 7, it was a prominent chapter in the minds and hearts of Jews in the first century. Listen to just the two key verses. This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see why everybody knows Daniel 7 in the first century? The most prominent prophecy for Jews, right? This is the guy that is coming. The one whom all nations and people should serve. And his kingdom is everlasting. It won't be destroyed. This is the person the entire Old Testament points to. If you read the Old Testament, you get this feeling that it's always anticipating something. It's always waiting for someone. And this is the guy. So think about the disciples in this moment. Now they've made the connection. This guy is Jesus, the guy they've been walking around with all this time. And Jesus says, you're right. You got it. So think about how shocking it is for them to hear Jesus then immediately say, yeah, and I must suffer. And I must be rejected. And I must be killed by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. What? Be killed? And, and wait, wait, are you saying you're going to be killed by fellow Jews? The very people who are waiting for this guy to come, waiting for you to come, they're going to be ones to kill their own Messiah? 
those three groups, Jesus says, elders, chief priests, and scribes, oftentimes we think all those people were just three different names for the same group, but it wasn't. They were all Jews, but they had some distinct differences in their own day. They were kind of enemies of one another, competing for things because they, they had some really different beliefs about some things. Some believed in the future resurrection, others did not. Some said we need to tie ourselves to the hip with Rome. We need to become allies with Rome. Others say no, we need to reject Rome and be freed out from under Rome. Um, to give a rough illustration, and this is dangerous to do so, but it would roughly be saying like this is like Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. All right, breathe. All right, we're not going there. No, just an illustration. You have three groups that you'd say are all Americans, all love their country, but are pretty diametrically opposed on some big things, right? of how things should play out, of, of what, where we should stand on certain issues. And I think today we would probably say, especially today, it would be shocking for something to happen where all three parties are unified. And, and yet that is what is happening here. Jesus is saying, listen, those three groups, elders, chief priests, scribes, this is the one thing they're going to be unified on, that I need to die, that I got to go. And the disciples hear this. I mean, can you imagine just what is going on in their minds right now? And so Peter, who is always the spokesman for the group, sometimes it goes well for him, most times it doesn't, right? He's the one who first declared who Jesus was, and so he's the one who now takes Jesus, pulls him aside, and rebukes him. He didn't want to do it publicly in front of the rest of the disciples, but he just wanted to take Jesus inside and go, Jesus, why would you say that? That goes against everything we think of the Son of Man. Like, that would ruin it all. Did you hear the, the, the passage? Everlasting dominion. All people should serve him, and you're saying you're going to be killed. Jesus, you're talking crazy, man. We're, we're starting to trust you. Don't do this. You're going to derail it all. Rebukes him. And in doing so, Peter reveals this expectation of what the long-awaited Messiah was going to be like. He was going to be the one who would come and, and liberate the Jews from Rome. The one who would spread the borders of Israel to be the most powerful nation in the world. He would be a victorious king by overcoming a vast army, not being defeated by it. He was going to mobilize the Jews, unify them, and state this earthly kingdom and be king. And once again, Israel will be a free nation. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that the Messiah was going to come through the family line of King David, right? Everybody knows about David. He's the most famous king in the Old Testament. And you remember how David came to power? Through victory in battle. He stormed on the scene by defeating Goliath, and then he became a mighty warrior. They would even sing songs in the Old Testament about David, how he defeated thousands, yeah, tens of thousands, and then he went and sat on the throne, and now Israel is waiting for the new King David. How could that happen if the Messiah is going to be killed? It makes no sense. So Peter and Jesus are off to the side. Peter's rebuking him. And do you notice what Jesus does? He doesn't just give a personal rebuke back to Peter, like, no, no, Peter, I got this. Just give me some time. He turns back to where the rest of the disciples are saying, and in front of everyone goes, get behind me, Satan. Ah, Jesus, that was a little, 
Is that out of rage, right? Could he not control his anger? Like, Jesus, that's probably not the route to go, right? Our boy Peter, feeling so high. Peter, this confession is the rock in which I'll build my church. And now, a verse later, Satan. I don't know if you've been called Satan recently, all right? I don't know what would have happened to make that happen, but probably didn't feel good. But Jesus doesn't just call him this out of rage and anger. He, he makes this connection in doing so, a really important one. Do you remember back when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist? What happened right after that? The Holy Spirit, we were told, sent him into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. Mark gave us the real abbreviated version. We got like two verses, just that he went and he overcame it. But, but the Gospel of Matthew gives us this kind of extended insight into what this was like. How Satan really had three goes at Jesus, three temptations. And his third and final one, do you remember what Satan did? Matthew chapter 4. He took Jesus up to a high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, Jesus, this could all be yours. You just fall down and worship me. Jesus, by this time, knew why he had come. He knew what he needed to do. But here, Satan was offering him another way. He's saying, Jesus, there's a way to be king without the cross. Just worship me, and you'll get it all. You don't need to go die And isn't that what Peter is doing here? Peter's not intentionally being Satan, but he's doing the same thing. He's rebuking Jesus by saying, Jesus, you're talking crazy, man. There's another way to be king that doesn't require the cross. Where you overcome, not where you're defeated. So Jesus hears this. He knows his temptation all too well. And he says, get behind me. Do not throw me off course now. Your mind, Peter, is on the things of man, not of God. You see, any offer that says salvation and victory is possible through any way other than the cross is of Satan. And setting your mind on things of man will always seek to empty the cross of its power. This happens as much if not more today than it happened back then. To find another way. An easier path, a a less gruesome path, that that whole dying so others may live, like that just doesn't translate well in 21st century, does it? There's another way. And this is always Satan's trick, and however many ways he can do it, is to find a way to empty the cross of its power. But Jesus says, I must die. The cross is needed because sin is deadly. The cross is needed because sin is deadly. It's why he came. There is no other way. The only way forgiveness of sin and an offer of salvation is made possible for those who believe is because of the cross. And it can't be purchased any other way. This is the paradox of the gospel of Mark, right? It's such an ironic gospel. And this is really the the apex of that. The scandal of the gospel is that victory comes through defeat. The Messiah will win by losing. Life comes from death, glory from suffering. It's the scandal of it all. It's the core of Christianity. And because Jesus paid it all, because that is true, it translates to now number two, what he says right after. Discipleship. 
He goes from saying, what's it mean to be the Messiah, to now saying, okay, men, followers all in future generations, what does it mean to be a disciple? What's it mean to follow Christ? So again, let's just put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. They have um, rightly identified Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And so the immediate question that they're going to try and unpack for themselves is, what's this mean for me? And since the disciples had a distorted view of what the Messiah would do, they also had a distorted view of what it meant to follow him. These guys thought they were in the driver's seat. Weren't they? Like, like if Jesus was going to come and become king of Israel, they're his right-hand men. That means good things for them. Like, they are going to be hooked up, right? They knew Jesus before he was a thing, right? You ever have that relationship? A lot of people, like, take that as, like, a badge of honor. Like, you knew someone before they made it big. They were still underground. And, that, and now everybody loves them, but you were there at the start. That means good things for you. These disciples are envisioning what their future looks like, and they're like, man, this is going to be awesome. Jesus is going to be king, and we're going to be his cabinet. And their reward was going to cash in right here and right now. Can't wait. Let's get this going. And in the same way, so often today, people talk about following Christ. And the way they might describe it is the exact opposite of what Jesus is about to say. Verse 34 is explosive, and many people wish they could probably cut it out of their Bible. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There could not have been a more shocking statement Jesus made. It's not what they were expecting. And as we will see, they will continue to struggle through this for the rest of the gospel. They just won't totally get it. And in some ways, you're like, how could they? And they're just going to be frustrated by the fact that, wait, this is not what we were expecting. Perhaps you've heard this, right? What's the definition of frustration? The definition of frustration is the difference between expectation and reality. The further reality is from what you were expecting, the more frustrated you are. And the disciples, in a matter of moments, have gone from thinking they are cream of the crop amongst the Jewish elite because Jesus is about to become king to them being told, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Back then, and still today, in our Western culture, this is just not talked about very much when it comes to the Christian life. Like, like if somebody were to ask you, what's it look like to be a disciple? What's it look like to be a Christian? What's it look like to be a follower of Christ? Well, verse 34 just gave us three essentials. Number one, deny yourself. Deny yourself. To be a disciple means that your own personal well-being is no longer your greatest pursuit, no longer your greatest desire, and no longer your greatest passion in life. Like, are you kidding me? How countercultural is that? Like, that statement will not do well outside these walls. If you go to self-help sections in the bookstore, like the few, like 13 bookstores that are still out there, or if you go to like self-help sections on the Amazon bookstore or just social media, these kind of people that have gotten really famous on just helping others, you know what they all start with? You need to prioritize yourself. 
You need to see yourself as the most important thing in the world. You got to take care of you. You do you. That's the message. And Jesus just said, deny yourself. Treasure Christ more than your own life, more than your own comfort, more than your own preferences. He doesn't say hate yourself. He says deny yourself. He doesn't say think less of yourself. He says think of yourself less. Deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross. I mean, like this is just where it goes off the rails, doesn't it? Like, like, deny yourself is tough, but this is just, like, insane. The cross was the most public and humiliating form of execution by the Roman Empire. Okay, that's like us saying today, like, trying to just wrap our heads around it. Take up your electric chair. Grab the needle that's going to be injected your, in your own arm. And in Luke's version of this, he records Jesus saying, take up your cross daily. Not a one-time thing. To follow Christ is to take up your cross daily. Like, do you see what that means? Like that gruesome picture that's painting every day, wake up and die to self. That's what it means to be a disciple. Like, this is just off the rails right now. Crazy talk. And it's true. The Apostle Paul would take this and, and he would provide some depth to it um, while encouraging different churches with letters in the New Testament. Galatians 2.20, he says, For I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 8.13 and 14, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is so important. This is the paradoxical, beautifully agonizing truth of the gospel. And praise God, we got to see it this morning. Didn't we in Jeremy's baptism? Isn't this what baptism is a picture of? A powerful picture? Under the water, dying to sin, dying to self. And that happened. That water was way colder than it usually is, all right? I don't know what was happening today, but Jeremy just died to self, all right? Like, respect that. Fully immersed. And that that picture of them being, that needs to happen. That death needs to happen in order for him to be raised out of the water to new life in Christ. Deny yourself and take up your cross. And then third, follow Christ. This is the core of what it means to be a disciple. This is the life you were called to live upon putting your faith and trust in Jesus. That, that not that this earns you anything in his eyes, but that he paid it all. And our only response that is suitable for his price of giving his own life is to take up our cross and follow him. To believe is to follow I talked a little bit about this last week, that, that to believe shapes the way you behave. And, and somehow in our culture, we've, we've managed to cast out believing in Jesus without having to follow him. Of emptying the cross of its power. And the Bible is clear, as, and as hard as it may seem, that you do not believe if you do not follow. And if you do want to follow, it's the way of the cross. 
the biggest concern in our postmodern culture today, the biggest concern and weight I feel as a pastor of a church is that we have been so immersed in a Christian culture of prosperity where this message is so foreign. Like it's not even considered a possibility. Like it's just strange. Where many people will paint a picture of following Christ in such a way where there's no hardship. Sometimes where it's actually the direct opposite. That being a Christian means you have God on your side. You know what I'm saying? It means all your problems will go away. Just trust in Christ. It means you'll have prolonged health. It means you'll live your best life now because God's on your side. And I'm reading the Bible going, man, I don't know where that verse is. And it's heartbreaking, and I can't help but think that the reason so many people get disillusioned with the Christian faith, so many people will walk away from the church and deny Christ and show such a little interest in faith compared to what they did at first or compared to what they grew up with is that they never counted the cost. Maybe it was never taught to them that this is what it is to be a disciple. Or maybe it was and they just didn't have the ears to hear it. But they didn't count the cost. They say they believe in Christ and they hear the promises of scripture, of, of victory and of prestige and of being a co-heir with Christ and how everything works out for good. And those are foundational promises but they never listen to the fact that the pathway to those promises is the way of the cross. And so they start on this journey of following Christ, and then it gets difficult, and they experience hardship, and they go, wait a minute, it's not what I signed up for. Where are all those promises I was told about? And they walk away. Just like incoming cadets to West Point, they, they were told that they're in. And all they thought about was the prestige of being a cadet, a West Point cadet, an officer in the army upon graduation, and how special that is, and how special they are. And all they saw was the final product, but they failed to count the cost of what it takes to get there. And so for many, when they start, they quickly realize, it's not what I expected. This is not the kind of life I signed up for. And so I'm out. And you see, it's important to count the cost. For a cadet, uh, to fail means a lost education, maybe a lost opportunity. But it's not the end of the world. But for those who say Jesus is the Christ, to fail to count the cost could mean a loss of life. Just like there's no other way to be the Messiah except by going the way of the cross, so there's no other way to follow him and be a true believer except by going the way of the cross. The Messiah will win by losing. Likewise, a disciple wins by losing, and the cross stands at the center of both. Okay. Jesus closes this teaching with four similar statements. We don't have time to really unpack them one by one, but they, they all start with the word for. Verses 35 to 38, four statements, and they all start with the word for. All right, if you're English major, you know your literary devices, you know that a sentence that starts with for is called the ground clause. It serves as the basis for the challenge that they saw in verse 34, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For, another word you could use is because, Whoever would save his life will lose it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory. This is the paradox of the gospel. This is the paradox of the Christian life. In order to save your life, you must lose it. There is no other way. You either gain the world or you save your soul. And the 12 disciples hearing this, I mean, probably just like shell-shocked, right? But in time, they will understand how true this is. Christianity began as a dot in the mid map of a in the middle of the most vast, powerful, non-Christian empire the world had ever seen. It should have never stood a chance. But this was the call on their life. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. And praise God, these men were faithful to the end and sparked a movement where by the power of the Holy Spirit, it has become the largest movement history has ever seen. And it happened on the backs of men who counted the cost. All but one of the disciples would die a martyr's death. Church history tells us, and the one guy who didn't, they tried to boil him alive and he survived. So they got freaked out and they just sent him to exile. And that was John who went on to write the book of Revelation, the final book in the Bible. And do you know how the early church referred to themselves in this movement early on? You see it a couple times in the book of Acts, and you see it in historical correspondence with one another. It was called the way. Called the way, which made it clear that believing in Christ was not just an abstract knowledge of facts that then did not impact their lives. No, what they believed put them on a path, a path to follow. Their lives were oriented around the way, a way of living, the pathway of life. And so in the weeks ahead, as we trek through the back half of this gospel, this is what we're going to be unpacking. What's the way? What's the way of following Christ? And I challenge you to come. Because, again, you can read ahead. You know, you can see what's coming. You can try and plan out, again, this week he's going to be there. i got to make sure we go away. Uh, This week he's going to be there. I don't know if I want to hear that. Don't podcast that week. But listen, there are some tough sermons coming. And it's all for the glory of God. And it's needed. And to prepare your heart and your mind and come expectant. Because I want to finish with this. I want you to hear me. This is not something to fear. This is not dread. All throughout the scripture, it is for all joy, brothers and sisters, that we've been called to follow Christ in this way. Isn't this just the paradox of the whole Christian life? The Christian life is not joy without suffering. And it's not suffering without joy. It's joy in suffering. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's where our Savior modeled it best, and it's where victory lies. To bear the cross is to wear the crown. And to be in the valley is to gain the vision. And so in the United States, listen, we will in all likelihood not be killed for what we believe 
That's part of the freedom that we celebrated in this country this past week that we are grateful for, that we can gather here with not wondering if today's the day we're going to be arrested, rejected, and killed for our faith. And we are grateful for that. But even still, we wake up and are called to wake up every day with the choice as to whether we are going to serve ourselves or deny ourselves. And our whole life will be shaped by that daily decision. And discipleship, to be a disciple, is gloriously inconvenient. Joy in suffering, denying ourselves for the glory of God and good of others, it is a life that is gloriously inconvenient, and it's the only life worth living. It's not easy, but it's possible by the power of the Holy Spirit within us to persevere on this path with all joy. And I want you to remember that as we head into the back half of Mark. Follow him. Count the cost. And trust that God will build his church to glorify his name and reach the world. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. And now it's our turn. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even and especially the difficult texts that you have put before us that have been inspired by your spirit that are perfect and true and sufficient for us. Father, grant us the grace to have the ears to hear this morning. Allow us to experience the joy that is in this life of discipleship, Lord. A joy that the world doesn't understand. A joy that your son put forth while hanging on the cross, Lord, a joy in suffering. Let it be for your glory. Let it be for the good of others. And let it be for our joy. In your name, in your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.